You need to mute the phone. Hi, Bill. It's Seth. Can you hear us? Yes. Um, we are streaming, by the way. And um, for some reason, I can't, I can't uh, type in the chat window. I apologize. But it does sound like there's some music coming from the background. Is that from you? When I uh, when I mute you, the music goes away. Hi. Hi. Do you hear some audio in the background? Okay. Uh, Carl, did you hear some audio in the background? Not right now, only over my phone, but I can't hear Bill's line over the B Live. Bill, can you just do another audio test? Carl, I hear him fine. I know you do because you're the host, but I can't hear him at all. Oh, 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 okay, okay. Uh, all right, that's fine. I'm assuming that once we, we show him in the stream, we'll be able to hear him fine. Okay, um, we are streaming, by the way, everyone. So it's, uh, <laughs> um, and uh, uh, three more minutes. Um, people can hear us because, um, so that's fine. I don't mind. Um, so I guess we'll just chill for a few more minutes. Sound good? Yeah, let's just do a quick test here anyway. Let's just do a quick test. I'm going to uh, bring Bill in. Yep, I hear you. Show in stream. Okay. Um, screen. Oh, good, good word. Um, I'm having trouble showing you in stream for some reason. I don't understand. Oh, there it is. Ah, thank goodness. Ah, oh, yay! Feeling much better now. Let's get Carl in here as well. Imperfect technology, but perfect message, right? And um, and Carl. Um,
Good afternoon, Bill. Hello. <laughs> okay, hi everyone. Sorry for funny difficulties, but whatever. That's our world these days. Technical challenges, but we're here. That's what matters. So um, it is officially one. According to my clock, it's one o'clock. Um, does everyone concur? Time to start. Officially time to start. Bill, can you hear me? I can hear you. Okay. Um, can you hear Carl? Yes, we're all set, Seth. Please okay. begin. Okay, great. Well, then let's start. Um, hello, everyone. Welcome to the Soil for Climate interview with uh, climate scholar, author, and activist Bill McKibben. We are honored, of course, to have him here. Uh, the theme of our show is envisioning a regenerative future. And um, this is part of the sort of Earth Week or Earth Month um, series of events that officially starts next week. Uh, but Bill was available today, so it was sort of excellent timing. And um, and Bill, just as a um, as sort of a fun thing, as a fun way to get started, we uh, begin all our interviews when we used to do them before the social distancing, and we actually sat with people. We would present them with a soil for climate hat. That was always part of how we got started. So there's a, a virtual presentation of the Soil for Climate hat. And someday when we see you in person uh, again, we'll actually give that to you. Now I'm gonna take myself out and uh, Carl will do a, a, a formal introduction for you. And then um, you will, will share some of your comments. Let me just remove myself here and, um, and remove this screen. And Carl, go for it. Okay, hello everyone. Uh, it's probably fair to say that our guest today requires no introduction, uh, but for those of you unfamiliar uh, with Bill McKibben's work, uh, he's been a, a very much a, a deep inspiration uh, to Seth and myself. Seth and I were involved uh, in a Step It Up rally held in Somerville, Massachusetts back in April 2007, which led to the creation of 350.org. And, uh, and even before that, in 1990, about a year after uh, Bill's book, The End of Nature, came out, which was the first book on global warming written for a lay audience. Um, it was uh, deeply educational to me. I had thought at that point, or prior to that point, that global warming was an issue that we would have to deal with at some point during the century. Uh, but through Bill's work, I learned, in fact, it was a, a pressing issue and of a scope of magnitude far greater uh, than I had previously realized. So I have uh, devoted my life since then to climate activism, uh, working with electric cars to help get the carbon out of the air, and then learning about 12 years ago about the role of soil, which we'll be getting to here. I also wanted to mention that uh, Seth and I not only participated in the Step It Up rally in 2007, in fact, we were involved in organizing it, uh, but also we marched uh, in the enormous climate um, uh, rally or march that was held in New York City in 2014, and Seth has a photo of it there. <coughs> So, um, and I've also read your book, Radio Free Vermont, uh, your uh, latest book, uh, the novel that you put out there. So I recommend uh, all of Bill's uh, books uh, for our, our viewers who are with us today. So um, I guess, uh, Bill, would you, I, I'd also, I guess like to add that uh, in addition uh, to your writing work that you do, uh, you've also been uh, involved, uh, basically started, I believe it was Bob Massey's idea originally, but for the divestment against fossil fuel investments, uh, which has now um, 
come to the point where I believe over a trillion dollars, if I'm not mistaken, has been divested from the fossil fuel industry, uh, including a number of governments uh, pulling out their funds. So it's a very, very major impact. And also uh, with the Keystone uh, Pipeline protest movement, uh, which I understand uh, through an interview I heard you do just a few days ago, that during the pandemic crisis that we have going on now, the oil companies are trying to take advantage of that uh, in calling it uh, essential work. And, and of course, uh, protesters are not able to assemble just out of uh, public safety. Uh, so this work is unfortunately going on unimpeded. So I, I'd like to stop talking there and Bill, if, if I've missed anything or anything you'd like to add to that, uh, please have the floor. Carl, thank you. Seth, thank you. Um, greetings, everyone. Um, the uh, It's a pleasure to be with you, um, even if it is under the always odd circumstances that uh, a month in are starting to seem a little bit normal. I actually do hundreds of talks by Skype a year, so it's not completely unfamiliar to me. Um, but there is, uh, well, there's a different valence hanging over us uh, uh, at the moment. Um, in some ways, uh, um, I mean, obviously a dark and tragic one, but if we're gonna go through the kind of pain and trauma we're going through as a world, we might as well learn some things. And I, I, I think actually we're probably being taught a few lessons uh, as a society and some of them are useful. Um, one of them, maybe most fundamental is that reality is real. Physical reality matters. You can't spin the COVID microbe. You can't make it compromise. You can't force it to negotiate. Uh, it's going to do what it's going to do in just the same way that the CO2 molecule is going to do what it's going to do. Uh, physics and chemistry aren't up for debate. And and that's the message we've been trying to get across for 30 years about climate change. I sense it may be sinking in a little bit as we deal with this pandemic. And a second and related message, which is delay is fatal. We look around and see that both the U.S. and South Korea had their first um, COVID-19 case on the same day in January. The South Koreans went to work. They disrupted things to some degree. Um, it wasn't easy, uh, but they're more or less looking at things a little bit in the rear view mirror, or at least the side view mirror now, instead of staring at them crashing through the front windshield like we are, because we wouldn't bring ourselves to move with speed. We had a leader who thought that maybe it was a hoax, or it was all going to go away when the weather got warm, or it was going to 15 cases would go down to zero or there'd be a miracle or blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, none of that happened. And now we're, now we not only pay the price of enormous disruption far more than other countries like South Korea deal with, we also pay an enormous toll in human lives. We should have started trying to flatten the carbon curve 30 years ago when we first were warned by scientists that we needed to. It would have been relatively easy to do at that point. Fairly modest changes like uh, price on carbon would have probably accomplished what needed accomplishing. But now, 30 years later, I mean, we're still in the place where we have to move as quickly as we can. But now that movement is necessarily disruptive. It's going to have to be large. And we're going to pay an enormous price. So we already are. I mean, it's 
hard to remember now, but this year began with the continent of Australia on fire, large parts of 20% of its forests burning in the course of a couple of weeks. We've never seen anything quite like that anywhere on the planet, I don't think. Um, so um, those lessons maybe will sink in along with the lesson that social solidarity really matters. The lesson that the you know, that the right wing has been hoisting on us for decades that if we just get out of the way and let markets do their thing, we'll be okay or so on, are clearly not true. Uh, you know, Ronald Reagan was wrong. The nine scariest words in the English language are not, I'm from the government and I'm here to help you. The scariest words in the English language are things like, uh, we're out of ventilators or the hillside behind your house is on fire. Um, so that's the prelude. You know we're in a very difficult place around climate change. You know that 2020 looks like it'll be one of the two, maybe three warmest years on record. You know that we've seen uh, over the last year the warmest uh, July and August ever recorded. Uh, almost every other month's been second warmest on record. And you know the toll that it's taking, not just in Australia, not just in California, but everywhere around the world. As we sit here today, um, farmers across much of Africa are dealing with an almost unbelievable swarm of, um, of locusts, uh, so large that, that they're eating the food that millions of people would eat in the course of a day, every day. We think that the birth of that swarm was exacerbated by climate change, by extremely wet weather at just the wrong moment in just the wrong place. Um, but our hearts go out to those millions and millions of small farmers trying to cope with this in the middle of a pandemic, um, which apparently is making it very difficult even to get the necessary chemicals and things to have any hope of, of, of slowing down the onslaught. It's a reminder, too, and something we shouldn't forget of what hard and difficult work farming is and the amount of risk that it always involves and thinking about the solutions that we have to propose uh, that, among other things, need to make it easier, not harder, to be a farmer going forward. So that said, let's talk a little bit. I'll just talk for a minute about uh, soil and carbon, and I'm very glad no small part thanks to this group that these questions around soil and carbon are much more prominent than they were a few years ago. Soil is really having its day in the climate debate as people are beginning to understand that over the long run, it's one of the few ways we have to really draw down carbon out of the atmosphere. Um, I've concentrated most of my work over the years on what I think is the single most urgent part of this problem, which is stopping pouring more carbon into the atmosphere. That's why we fight the fossil fuel industry so head on. And Carl's right, this divestment campaign has become the biggest thing of its kind corporate campaign in history at about $12 trillion worth of endowments and portfolios that have now divested doing big damage to an industry. Um, we've fought fossil fuel infrastructure like the Keystone Pipeline all over the world. 
you win some of those fights, we lose some, but even when we lose them, you know, we delay things and delay is good because with every month that passes, the engineers are dropping the cost of a solar panel or a wind turbine a few percent more. But even if we do better than we dare hope in that fight, um, we're still going to need to draw carbon out of the soil, out of the air, because there's too much there already. We're at 412, 14 parts per million. Uh, you know, the world works as we know it at 275 parts per million. That's as much as existed during the 10,000 years of human civilization that led to the Industrial Revolution. The best guess of the best scientists is we need to get to 350 parts per million or below to have some chance of stabilizing climate. So that means sucking some up. And you all know how that works. You know that oceans and forests suck some carbon up every year, and thank God they do. Um, but not enough uh, to keep pace with what we pour into the atmosphere. And increasingly, those sinks are beginning to clog, as it were, the ability of forests, say, to remove carbon reduced because we're doing damage to those forests by heating them. So soil is one of the um, one of the nice wild cards. And if we could figure out how to farm differently, uh, we might be able to build healthy soils that would draw a lot of carbon out of the atmosphere. The numbers can be pretty darn big. Now, that doesn't mean that in any way is this an easy fight. Uh, it's not easy in part because there are so many farmers. <laughs> um, you know, we take on oil companies and they're really rich and really powerful and really hard to move, but there's only 12 or 15 of them that matter. So you've got a limited target set. You've got billions of farmers. So you need ideas that can be easily and quickly transmitted uh, between farmers. And we're beginning to see some of that. You know, the, the French law about increasing tilth, increasing soil carbon each year has been one of those things that's helped drive a certain amount of, of real um, focus. And it would be a very good idea to do the same thing in places around the world. I know that Seth and Carl have worked hard on state initiatives that would help incentivize carbon farming, as it were. But it's going to take, well, it's going to take a lot of work and a lot of luck to be able to reach those billion or two farmers and scale up at the, the, at the pace that we need to go. That means figuring out, you know, means figuring out how to organize. And organize is what, um, well, it's what we try to do at 350, and it's what Greta Thunberg tries to do, and it's what, uh, you know, the Sunrise Movement tries to do, and all of it with an increasing amount of success. And organizing just means finding people who uh, can be brought to share your belief and getting them engaged in the process. And, you know, that's difficult sometimes. And it's difficult, I think, with farmers sometimes because one thing farmers don't necessarily have much of is free time, at least, you know, uh, March to November. Um, um, but also because people tend to get, well, tend to do the things that 
they grew up doing and that their parents did before them. And uh, you know, agricultural innovation's always hard because people live crop to crop, and it's difficult to take a gamble in any given year. You know, um, so we need sympathy for that. We need to plan about that and make sure that the incentives that are provided, the education and extension work that's done, all of that really helps people move forward. Uh, I, I think we can do that, um, but it's going to take way more organizing than we've done so far, which is why it's important that groups like this one continue to grow in their reach and in their outreach. And, and as they do, then there's possibility for someday, maybe in the not-too-distant future, uh, these concepts becoming part of the next farm bill, which is in America how we, you know, make change on, the, on our agricultural lands. Um, not impossible for it to spread in lots of other directions around the world, as indeed it already has. You know, some work has come out of Africa. Dr. Savory and his Work. Some works come out of Kansas, uh, Wes Jackson and his work. Well, works come from um, many, many different directions. And it's good to see it happening and good to see farmers and then chefs and consumers and others starting to take it seriously. Um, I just, I guess that's what I want to say, that people are to be commended for getting this going and visible. And now the question is, how do we make it spread at the speed that we need it to spread if it's going to catch up with the physics of climate change. So thank you all very much. Bill, thank you so much for those um, introductory comments. Um, and you just hit the nail on the head uh, uh, that's of interest to our group, which is this, this sort of the how-to. Um, so uh, let me just put it out there. Um, there are a lot of questions started to come in last night. We posted it on Facebook. So we said, ask your questions here. And of course, there's many now, so I can't, you know, read them all. But there's, there's, there's a couple of themes of questions that we hear a lot. And one is how to reward the producers, so the people who are doing grazing and cropping, um, for their ecological service. What is the mechanism by which they're rewarded for restoring soil carbon? Uh, is it a carbon tax? Is it just education? Is it um, legislation? You know, uh, uh, what what thoughts do you have that can help us um, in, enlighten and empower the producer and the consumer in this regard? So this, I mean, this is not my specialty, obviously, but this is one of these places where it's clear that not having any price on carbon ever has been a problem. Um, it's absurd that carbon is the one thing that carries no price at all, you know, um, considering the fact that it poses a greater danger, practical and economic, than any other uh, thing on Earth at this point. And by any logic, it should carry a price, and then we'd have a sense of what it was worth to be drawing more of it down or whatever else. That's how, you know, one of the ways that we're going to learn how to incentivize farmers to do this. People have begun to figure it out. Um, um, you know, the French, as I say, 
have made some strides in figuring out how to incentivize people going forward doing this. So there's models out there that one can emulate. Uh, uh, but, you know, one of the things that reminds us is that nothing happens in a vacuum. And it's why it's extremely important, among other things, to put people in charge in Washington who care about these things and who will be appointing people at the USDA and at the Forest Service and at the BLM and elsewhere who take these questions seriously. Uh, Bill, thank you. Um, Carl, I, I see you have a question. I'll go to you in one quick second. But, Bill, because you, you did mention uh, France. Um, so the French started a program called Quad Per Mill in English, four per thousand, where they're trying to improve soil organic uh, carbon by four parts per thousand. It basically is the amount necessary to offset our emissions, and it's completely doable. And so that's now an international movement called four per thousand. It's literally the number four, and then the letter P in the thousand, fourperthousand.org. And the uh, executive director of that organization, Dr. Paul Wu, will be a guest on this show a week from today exactly so this is good segue for me to put in a plug uh for next week um right here with dr paul Wu, who is the director of the french four per thousand program um carl did you want to ask you now uh, just a comment in that one way that our work does overlap with that of 350.org in terms of cutting emissions is uh is looking at the fossil fuel industry uh, synthetic nitrogen is made using fracked natural gas. Uh, in 2019, it was approximately a $160 billion business. We have many farmers and ranchers in the group who have not used any synthetic fertilizer for 10 or even 15 years or more. So not only are they saving money and becoming more profitable and, and more sustainable in their businesses, uh, but they're also in their own way helping to reduce uh, the need for fossil fuels. And this, this can have a very large role to play as well. Absolutely. Next question, Steph. Um, okay, well, let's talk about the, the pandemic, if you will, um, sort of diving into it. Let me share with you what's actually been happening in our group. Um, we have a lot of people in our group who are producers who have mail water businesses. And um, a lot of them are doing sort of regenerative beef production uh, in the, the savory model. And I've been told that their sales are just going through the roof. One of them particularly just told me that in the last two months, he did the last two weeks, he did six months worth of business, um, just mail order. And in, a, in sort of a weird way, the pandemic is, be pandemic is becoming a good thing for the regenerative producers. Um, and I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about that. Well, I doubt that, I doubt in the long run that it's a good thing for almost any of us, but I do think that there are things we can learn, as I said. And, and I think one of them that really is important and probably very helpful in the long run is that um, food matters, you know. Uh, all of a sudden, we actually care about our food supply. And, you know, where does it come from? And is there enough of it? And can I get some in my supermarket? And if I can't, where's the nearest farmer? And how do I track him down? These are things that here in Vermont, you know, we've uh, had some experience in over the years. It's been one of the, the kind of homelands of the local food movement, which is good. Um, 
um, but maybe this will be a spur to help other people in other places see that knowing and connecting with their local farmers is an awfully useful thing. Um, Bill, is there an example that you're aware of of uh, some sort of reward for an ecological service? Is there any example we can draw on? I don't know. What do you think? Seth, you must have some examples in mind. <laughs> you know, actually, I, I, I don't have one to call on right now, but we, we use that term a lot, it, rewarding someone who's doing an ecological service. I mean, there's, there, are, there certainly have been, uh, you know, efforts to reward uh, places that say don't cut down rainforests. Um, and that's been, you know, it's... <laughs> It's easy to do it badly, and there's been a lot of pushback from Native Americans and others against some of the UN plans over the years. Uh, when structured correctly, uh, and with the participation of those involved, it's been an interesting process. Um, and you know, it's one of the reasons that uh, deforestation in the Amazon slowed pretty dramatically over time. Um, um, now, of course, picking up again under Bolsonaro. So. I think um, I think that that might be one place to look, and I think it would be good to avoid the mistakes that were made uh, throughout. Um, um, in that case, it was really important to find uh, indigenous landowners and work with them, not against them. Now, um, what about the insurance industry? You know, it occurs to me they could be a, a big player in this. Um, uh, you know, it's interesting. A lot of the producers who are doing some of the best work aren't even necessarily on the, if you will, the climate change bandwagon. Um, and, and it almost doesn't matter. You know, they're not doing it for climate change. They're doing it for soil and quality of life and better food. And, and um, they can be rewarded for that service. Anyway, think about things like um, flood mitigation and drought mitigation and fire mitigation. You know, they're talking now about, um, you know, using goats to clear the underbrush in California, you know, paradise, the paradise, California fires. And that, that was a big topic in our thing. Well, why weren't goats used just to clear the brush? Yes, no, insurance yes. is a really big deal. Um, um, you know, we've, we've been talk, taking on the insurance industry a lot in recent times, and it's because they've done a poor job on all these things and need to do better. I mean, insurance is the part of the economy that we ask to analyze and handle risk for us. Um, so they know all that there is to know about climate change. They're good at it. Uh, they've got all the actuarial data they understand, and the corporate office usually puts out some nice press release every couple of years about their commitment around climate change. But then they go on, you know, uh, investing in oil companies. They go on uh, underwriting uh, new fossil fuel projects, so on and so forth. So this would be, you know, and, and we call them out on it and hard. This would be a good place to, to kind of try and redirect some of that energy to. Okay, well, um, I just want to say we stand with you in that regard. Because things like crop insurance, drought insurance, flood mitigation, yeah. Oh, you've frozen up on me. There. You know, flood and 
Oh, Jesus. Now, Am now I closing I up on you too, Carl? Okay. I, but even, even if... Um, even if there wasn't a price on carbon, there's a million ways in which proper agriculture uh, serves society. And so we want to stand with your movement um, as, as, a, as a shoulder to shoulder uh, in this regard. And, and I want to say part of the reason why I felt comfortable getting involved in the Soil for Climate movement was I felt that the, the movement to take on the um, fossil fuel industry was already in such good shape you know, because of your work, like you had set such a good example of that and we're doing such a good job, then I felt like, okay, we have a, some room here to work on this other task, which is bringing it down. Yeah, exactly. And of course, it's really good to see that, you know, this movement is spreading off in so many different directions. Y'all are very familiar with the work that Paul Hawken has done. And, you know, that opens up a dozen different angles from which to work. And so people are doing really good work around oceans, for instance, and uh, understanding their role and things. Um, but there's no question that if you go look at a if you go look at a globe, I mean, uh, 30% of the planet's covered by soil, more or less. Um, and uh, although not all of it's all that good, but um, um, that it, there's no way to imagine, envision a global solution that doesn't take it into account. And uh, Bill, um, so I just want to reemphasize that we absolutely stand with you and, and let us know how to best serve your efforts. Well, okay. I think that the, I mean, the, the best thing about this movement is we all work, you know, everybody's working hard on their things. And a lot of the work gets done locally, which is as it should. But everybody's interconnected enough that when there's a big moment that everybody needs to come together on, then we can. So the climate strikes last September, for instance, um, or I, I think probably this fight against the big financial institutions right now is drawing everybody in because it's so important. That's why this Stop the Money Pipeline Coalition has just about everybody engaged in it. Um, so uh, that, that's one of the beauties of a uh, big broad but at least loosely connected movement yeah and bill i see we're, we're glad right. to see people in the chat talking about uh the importance of education in this work and I, I think that's really true one of the initiatives i've been happiest to see has come out of the land institute in salina kansas and the way that they've they're now cooperating with a bunch of colleges around the country including middlebury where i teach uh bill vtech is uh you know, uh, there at Middlebury, helping spread some of that gospel about, among other things, perennializing annual agriculture, which I know you understand uh, its potential importance if we can make some of that happen. Excellent. Bill, I know we're running out of time. I want to be sensitive to that. Uh, just real quick, um, a mutual friend, uh, Vanessa Rule, was uh, promoting this event on her Facebook page. And... Um, I saw she had these two hashtags. One was keep it in the ground and the other was put it back in the ground. And and I thought that Very was good. That was clever. So let's let's play with both of those two together. Absolutely. Absolutely. I listen, it, it is uh 131 now. You said you had Thank you guys for your good work very much and thanks to everybody who does this work. Um, on we go guys. We'll see you down the road. Okay. Thank you Bill. Bill, thank you. Take care. Thank you. Yep.
Thank you so much. And now Carl and I will, will hold the line. Uh, friends, that was Bill McKibben, um, founder of the 350.org organization, one of the largest climate uh, organizations in the world. And um, Carl and I decided that, that we would just stay on the line for a couple more minutes and um, talk a little bit about the soil for climate movement. Um, and um, uh, just, you know, for our friends who we could only stay on for uh, for half an hour. Um, so, so if you will, we'll just talk for a few more minutes about the movement and some of the science and, and what's going on behind that. Um, uh, this is a slide, Carl, if you don't mind, I'm gonna uh, bring you up, take you out of the image for a sure, second. Sure, it might be helpful um, to mention uh, as well where the name of Bill's group came from as you discuss this slide. Oh. Okay, well, Carl, why don't you go ahead and say something about that right now yourself? Sure. Um, Bill chose the name of his group, uh, 350.org, because he wanted to have a, a name that would translate into different languages all over the world. And so he decided to call it by a number. And the reason the number is so, is so important is because it refers to the parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Today, we're at approximately 415 parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere, uh, much higher uh, than what the historical average has been. And at the time that Bill McKibben uh, formed the group, James Hansen had uh, shortly before that put out a paper saying that the safe level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere uh, was at best 350.org. And since then he said, we probably even have to go quite a bit lower than that. So not only do we need to cut emissions to stop putting more and more carbon into the atmosphere, but we need to very aggressively begin removing the excess carbon from the air as Bill McKibben pointed out, uh, there are very few tools that we have to work with that offer as much potential as soil restoration. Seth? Okay, great, thank you. So, um, Carl, I'm just gonna hide you for a minute here just to make more room for the slide. And um, let's play with the, uh, the graphics here. Um, and you don't even need to see me at this point, but the audio should still happen. So, um, this is actually an old slide. Um, it's showing what's called a source and sinks. Uh, the source here is the CO2 uh, coming from human uh, industrial processes, you know, burning fossil fuels. It's measured in terms of gigatons or billions of tons of carbon per year. And what you see are, those numbers, by the way, are changing quickly, excuse me it's closer to around 11 gigatons per year now. But at any rate, what you see is three sinks. And um, I'm gonna actually bring my, uh, my video in here just for a second. Um, <coughs> the sinks are the ocean, the atmosphere, and the terrestrial sphere are basically soil and biomass. And we can't really do much about the oceans. That's um, basically the carbon dioxide literally dissolves with the water and becomes carbonic acid, which is a horror in its own. We don't hear enough about that. Um, it goes up into the atmosphere and creates global warming. We hear a lot about that. Um, but so those two are bad, but the, the sort of the irony here is that terrestrial uptake is a good thing. <laughs> You know, we want that and we want more of that. And so the whole focus of soil for climate is on that third uh, sink to the left, 
the terrestrial biosphere, the uptake of carbon dioxide in soil. That's really what we're all about. Now, Bill's movement, 350.org, is about reducing the emissions, so the bottom one. But our movement is about increasing the uptake in soil. So that's really sort of a visual way of explaining that whole thing. And um, there's another slide here that gets into a bit more detail. Um, hang on with me for one second while I just kind of, um, you know, play with the, the screen here so you can kind of see. Um, Oops, sorry, I think you, maybe you lost my audio there. But, but anyway, you, you get the idea, I guess, um, with what's happening here. That what I want you to see in this slide is the bottom left. See where it says soil 2300? That's 2300 gigatons or 2300 billion tons or 2.3 trillion tons. Okay, that's a lot of carbon is in soil. That's the point and we can, we can increase the amount. And that's where the regenerative farming and ag comes to play. It's all about that. All right, so that was basically just sort of an overview of the whole soil for climate um, science and, and movement, if you will. We're on the uptake side. Carl, uh, you wanna say any sort of uh, uh, last points here before we sign off? Uh, by uptake, we mean drawdown. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, uptake means drawdown. Very good. Thank you. Uh, I'd you like to close, uh, sure, with my poem, Climate Farming. Yeah, okay. Let me, uh, let me reduce myself here. So um, go for it. So an important part of the climate movement, we feel, is music, poetry, other art. Uh, at our website, soilforclimate.org, uh, we have a link to the song, Brand New Sky. So um, if folks haven't heard that yet, I encourage you to check that out. Uh, but I'd like to close with my poem, Climate Farming. So what's the future? Is there no hope? Healing the land can help us cope and grow better food with less flooding too. Put carbon in soil is what we must do. Draw down the heat, slow the sea rise. Let birds and bees thrive in the skies. Good farming is how we deal with this mess. Now the climate's fixed, what's next to address? Thank you. Carl, wonderful.